Interviewing engineers is not a solved problem. Quite the opposite. Everyone in the software industry will tell you their own personal issues with the hiring process. One reason that technical interviews have not evolved significantly is the lack of standardized process and tooling. Some companies give you one phone screen, some give you two. Some companies have you solve brain teasers, like how many golf balls fit in a school bus. And some make you fix bugs in their production code base. During the on-site interview process, some companies use whiteboards and some let you use a laptop. Software companies do so much. They should be outsourcing the things that are not their core competency. Certainly, they cannot outsource the entire hiring process, but they can outsource and standardize certain parts of it to a company like Interviewing.io. Engineers come to Interviewing.io to practice their interview skills where other engineers from top companies practice with them as an interviewer. When an engineer has practiced interviewing enough, they can use interviewing.io to interview for real with real companies and find a job. Aileen Lerner is the CEO of interviewing.io, and she knows about the software interviewing and recruiting process as much as anyone. After working as an engineer herself, she started studying recruiting, consulting with top companies to help them improve their process. From her observations, she created Interviewing.io, and in this episode, we dissect the workflow that she created for engineers to improve at interviewing and find jobs. And we also explore the insights that led her to starting Interviewing.io. Aileen Lerner is the CEO of Interviewing.io. Aileen, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. How did technical recruiting evolve to where it is today? Well, there, you know, technical recruiting is kind of a hairy beast with a lot of dark corners. Um, I can talk more about the specific aspect of it, which is technical interviewing, than perhaps the industry as a whole, although I have some ideas about why recruiting is the way it is, um, and I'll, I'll touch on that as well. So I think a lot of people have a lot of opinions about the right way to interview engineers. And one thing that we've discovered in interviewing IO after looking at thousands and thousands of interviews on our platform is that nobody really knows what they're doing, <laughs> kind of us included, although, you know, we do have a lot of data and, and that gives us at least an idea of what not to do. But I was always curious about why technical interviewing is the way it is. It's uh, an interview process that's different than you see in a lot of industries, especially older ones where there's some established credential, like the board exam for, for uh, doctors, if you're board certified and things like that. So my best guess, and I, I did a little bit of research on this, is that the way we interview now originated in the 50s at Shockley Semiconductor. And at that point, this industry was growing really, really fast because of the Cold War. So they needed a lot of smart people to come work there and do stuff that nobody had ever really done before. And it was very different than the kind of assembly line skills-based work that had preceded it. So rather than interviewing people for a specific set of skills, at Shockley, and, and the guy that was running at Shockley himself, uh, I think was pretty adamant about this approach, he was much more into interviewing people for just their ability to solve puzzles. And a lot of these puzzles ended up over time making it into the technical interviewing process at uh, large companies in the 90s, uh, Microsoft being one. And Microsoft, in a lot of ways, set the standard for a lot of how technical interviewing was and still is. Um, so these puzzles would be things like finding which coin is like heavier than other coins using less weighings than you might think and stuff like that. And at Microsoft, um, especially, and then later at, at Google, this is one of the first times when you needed a workforce 
that wasn't just dependent on managers deciding uh, exactly how to implement everything and then just having coders be drones. But, you know, uh, everything was moving too quickly. So you needed these individual contributor aspects of your workforce to still be able to make hard decisions and think on their feet and, you know, potentially do a lot of design and architecture. And programming languages themselves are changing so quickly that potentially interviewing for a set of skills would be too uh, limiting. So, you know, all these companies are trying to just find ways of figuring out who is a good problem solver and who can think like an engineer. And they ended up with a lot of these uh, brain teaser problems. And later, when Google kind of figured out that brain teasers don't predict much of anything, uh, more algorithmic kinds of problems. Last thing I'll say about it is that one of the reasons these large companies still persist in using this kind of interviewing, whether it's good or bad, is that uh, as you scale and you scale your hiring process, you need to have uh, this notion of interchangeable parts. So you need to plug in any interviewer into any interview and have them still be able to do it, which means that your interviews have to be very general. Um, and this way, there's kind of a minimum ramp up in onboarding new interviewers, and you can just swap them in and out and really scale your hiring process. What ends up happening now, you know, back we're in present day, we have this process that evolved semi-organically for a variety of reasons that fit the needs of the day. Uh, kind of what ends up happening is a lot of smaller companies are looking to these giants, uh, you know, the Microsofts, the Googles, more recently the Facebooks, and looking at their process and copying that process blindly, almost in a cargo culty kind of fashion, where you're you're looking at the process when the process is really not the reason for why things work. Rather, you know, people want to work at Google because Google does cool stuff and has smart people. It's almost like despite their their hiring process, no matter what they do, they're probably still going to have a revolving door. That is not true of some small startup that no one's ever heard of. So one of the things I'll kind of hearken to over and over again is that if you're a small company and you don't have much of a brand, it doesn't mean you should lower your bar, but you should think critically about whether you're making people jump through hoops. Hmm. The smaller startups, then, should they have a more unique and differentiated hiring process? Would it make sense? Because it sounds like the repeatable, the repeatable, highly data-driven, interchangeable parts-driven strategy of a Google, maybe that's necessary to have a scalable hiring process. But if you're just a super small company, you might want a more tailor-made hiring process. Is, is that what you're saying here? That's exactly right. So one of the things that I think is really important about having a tailor-made process isn't even in, you know, necessarily identifying the best talent for you, although that's important, but in just being cognizant of market dynamics when you're hiring uh, software engineers. The fact is that, at least for the time being, uh, it is really hard to hire good engineers and the uh, supply of these engineers is completely outstripped by demand. So that means that the economic power is in the hands of labor, uh, the engineers themselves. And that means that if you're going to interview people, you can't make them jump through hoops. So rather, especially if you're a small company without much of a brand, you should be using your opportunity, your interview uh, as an opportunity to sell at every step of the way. So how does that actually translate into your questions? Well, a lazy process might just involve opening, cracking the coding interview, picking a random question off that page, and then starting to ask people that question. That works if you're Google, because people are already sold on your brand. If no one's heard of you, what you might want to do is tailor your questions to be more indicative of the kind of work that you do every day. And that doesn't mean even necessarily that they have to be super practical. You can still ask a lot of the same, if it's important to you, you can still ask a lot of the same algorithmic kinds of questions 
uh, while putting it in a framework of, hey, we recently ran into this problem. Let's uh, think about it together. And then, you know, if you're a good interviewer, you can progressively layer complexity. So you can start with uh, a pretty easy version of that problem. And then, you know, by the end, by the end, after four or five iterations, you will probably have gotten to the point where you don't even know how to solve it yourself anymore. Um, one of the best interviewers I've ever met uh, once used this expression of like, the point of an interview is to see if we can be smart together. And I really, really like that. So, you know, if, if you do this well, you can pick an interesting problem. And then not only does the candidate appreciate that they got some insight into the work, if the problem is compelling enough, it's something that's probably going to stick in your head if you're the candidate. And then when you leave the interview, you're still going to be thinking like, oh, how do I, is there a better way? Is there, is there a good way I can solve this? And then, and then you've really gotten under their skin, which is, uh, you know, the point of, of a good sales approach. So that's, that's something I would very strongly advocate. Um, one of the things I recommend when companies ask me about this is just start a shared Google Doc or something else, just any shared document with your Eng team. And every time you do one of the members of your team where you does something cool or something unexpected or runs into a problem that makes you think, just dump it in there in an unstructured way. And pretty soon you'll have a nice repository of the kernels of good interview questions. And then you can take these ideas and massage them into something that you can repeat. Before we dive into your solution, maybe you could touch on some of the other problems of... Well, of of the like, maybe you could dive into some of the other problems of of interviewing and the the current model, and then we could just talk about like how interviewing IO solves some of those problems. Yeah, I'm happy to. So yeah, I'll talk a little bit about some of the other interviewing problems, and then kind of as I promised at the beginning, I'll touch a little bit on like what I think is wrong with recruiting in general. So then I can really set up like how we solve everything. No, I'm just kidding; we don't solve everything, but uh, you know, at least I can uh, set up that the problem is real. So one of the main other problems problems with interviewing, and this is kind of a byproduct of the kinds of questions people ask, is that it's pretty non-deterministic. So what does that mean? It means that if the same person does a string of interviews over a pretty short span of time, they're probably not always going to end up with the same result. So they're not always going to pass. This is something that I think people viscerally suspect, especially if they've been through a few interviews themselves. But this is something we've actually collected data on at Interviewing.io. And the data is exactly as I described. So you look at a person who uh, participates in a series of technical interviews over a fairly short span of time, and then you see how they do. And the fact is that most people, even if on average they're killing it, like doing really, really well, they're going to have an interview that they bomb every, I don't know, one in five, every one in ten. And while it's not that often, most people are not, you know, that consistent. So people will mess up, you know, one in four, one in three. And uh, these are still very, very good engineers, many of whom are getting offers from top companies. But what ends up happening is not only is it a poor signal, which means that interviewers waste more time and companies spend more time paying them and spend much time on interviewing. But, you know, you can have a candidate who ends up getting rejected by Lyft and then getting an offer from Uber or getting an offer from, or vice versa, right? Uh, and, and then, you know, whichever one of those you end up at, and I'm just using those as an example of, of companies with a fairly comparable bar who are operating in a very similar space, no matter what, after a few months, a recruiter from the company where you got rejected is probably going to be hitting you up again. So the, the whole system just feels very clunky and inefficient. And the, the other piece of this outside of interviewing is that the resume, and this is even before interviewing, so like how do you even get your foot in the door at a company? Well, typically you have a friend refer you or maybe a recruiter reaches out to you on LinkedIn and 
If not, you're going to apply online. But in the latter two cases, recruiters are typically just looking at how you look on paper. And the resume is just such a fundamentally flawed and low signal document, especially for engineering. And as a result, some of the best people are being kept out. Uh, some people that look very good on paper but actually can't code their way out of a paper bag are being let in. And you end up with so much noise. And as a result, by the time p- people get to the technical interview, most of them fail in part because the process is flawed and in large part because the filtering that happens even before you get to the interview is completely flawed. So then we end up spending all this money and time interviewing the wrong people. Uh, every company in the Valley seems to be chasing the same 10 candidates. In the meantime, there's this long tail of amazing and perfectly qualified engineers that don't even get to show what they can do. Mm. All right. We'll explain what interviewing.io is. Yay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So kind of having set up the problem, uh, we just want to get rid of resumes in technical hiring entirely, or at least uh, ditch them as a means of deciding who gets their foot in the door. So what we've created instead is a platform where any uh, software engineer can come and practice technical interviewing. This ends up being pretty appealing because technical interviewing is scary. It's scary to everybody and almost counterintuitively, it's especially scary in our experience to senior engineers, many of whom haven't had to deal with the kinds of algorithmic questions that interviews feature since they were an undergrad or since the last time they had to study. So, you know, before we existed, people would probably practice with their friends or more likely they would set up a few burner interviews. So, you know, pick a few companies where you don't really want to work but, uh, you know, that have a pretty indicative hiring process and you'll just go there, interview with them, warm up and then go to the companies where you actually want to work. Kind of like dating where you, you go on a few throwaway dates if you're getting back out there to find your sea legs before you actually go um, and date the people you want to date. So same idea. So we decided we're going to make that easier. So we, we give out free practice interviews to anybody who wants them as long as they're a software engineer. The really cool part of it is that everything on our platform is completely anonymous. So a lot of our users are engineers that do work at companies like Facebook or Google and have been there for, I don't know, like four years. And they're maybe thinking they're a little bored uh, and maybe they want to get out there and then try a startup, but they realize that they have to go through the interview gauntlet if they're going to do that. And if you're an engineer of that seniority with that much brand sparkle behind you, it's so intimidating to have to kind of get out there and represent one of these big brands. Because if you fail, you really look like an idiot, right? Everyone's expecting you to kill it. And then if you're a Google engineer who can't like, you know, reverse a linked list or whatever, um, you, you really look stupid. So we've de-risked the whole thing. So you can show up, get free anonymous interview practice. And, you know, you're not solving asynchronous challenges. This is all going to be with another person. A lot of these are interviewers that are in our lineup that are coming from top companies and are willing to give their time. And the cool part is is once you've done a few of these interviews, we essentially create a profile for you and figure out where you stack up in the grand scheme of things. So we also tell you your percentile, which is nice because a lot of the time you have no idea. Everybody thinks they're doing poorly all the time, and some of them are, but most of them aren't. So once you're established as a top performer in our system, you can go through and For any of the companies that hire through us, any of the employers on our platform, you can just click a button and instantly book an anonymous technical interview with them, effectively bypassing the entire resume screen phase, all the scheduling back and forth that you'd have to do. And you can skip right to the part that matters where you get to talk to an engineer at that company. So what ends up happening is people get in the door based on 
their ability. And, uh, you know, of course, it's not perfect. Technical interviews are flawed, but at least we have aggregate data and not just one data point. And beyond that, one of the most exciting things that, you know, we keep hearing over and over from our customers, and these are companies like Quora and Lyft, Twitch, Facebook, and, and so on, is that a lot of people that applied there ended up getting rejected based on their resume. So they didn't even get to interview. And then they come in through interviewing IO, sort of coming in through the back door and do really, really well in interviews and get hired. And for us, that's such a win. And it just makes us so happy to hear um, because I think everybody knows the current system is completely and anything that we can do to make it just a little more fair uh, makes us really, really happy. Hmm. So zoom in a little bit more on your process how your process is different from the conventional way that a candidate might be screened and potentially hired at an organization? So uh, conventionally, your resume is going to matter uh, unless you have the good fortune of coming in as a referral. Uh, if, you know, if you have a friend that refers you, your resume probably doesn't matter as much. But if you're not well networked and you didn't have the good fortune of maybe going to one of a few schools, you're probably not going to have connections in the heart of Silicon Valley, right? Um, so I said that with like air quotes. <laughs> you can't tell that. But, you know, if, if you aren't well networked, then your resume is essentially your identity. And if you don't have a top school or a top company on that resume, the doors of top companies will likely forever be closed to you. So for us, this is a way of opening up those doors to people who code as well as somebody that did go to one of these top schools or, or top companies is expected to code, but doesn't have that pedigree. But even beyond that, we want to make the process just more efficient for everybody. So even if you are a well-pedigreed candidate, and in fact, I think about 60% of our users are, we still want to make the process less painful for you. So this way, you don't have to bother all your friends, right? You don't have to find that old recruiter email or LinkedIn email if you even over, ever open LinkedIn and hope that that recruiter still works there. And you don't have to send your resume. And you know, even if you're a good candidate, a lot of the time you won't hear back because applying inbound in this market is like screaming into a black hole and you know, the, the abyss doesn't often look back at you. So it's, it's this attempt to completely take traditional credentialing off the table, make how people how well people write code, the only thing that matters. And then on top of that, just completely streamline the process for all engineers, regardless of whether they're pedigreed or not. As long as they can code, we want them. Talk a little bit more about the anonymity, because this is one of the technical challenges that you've overcome is implementing a way to interview anonymously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is something we're super proud of. Thank you for asking about it. So there are a few aspects, as we learned, that are needed in order to make an interview truly anonymous. So let me tell you how our interviews work, and then I'll tell you a little bit about the stuff that we built. And because I didn't have a hand in building most of them beyond kind of willing them into existence, some of these explanations will be a bit hand-wavy, but hopefully you'll forgive me. So the way it works is every interview on our platform, whether it's practice, and you know if you make it into the top performer pool and talk to real companies, whether it's real, is completely anonymous. So uh, the way it works is when you actually show up for your interview and all scheduling on our platform happens automatically as well. And obviously you don't see who you're scheduling with except the company name. But once you show up to your interview, there's no video. You just get dropped into a collaborative coding environment uh, with audio and text chat and a whiteboard and a place to take notes and essentially everything that we think you will need to do a technical interview on both sides. 
uh, for the collaborative coding environment, we're actually fortunate enough to be able to license CoderPad, which I'm sure many of your listeners have used either as an interviewee or an interviewer. In our mind, it's the best interview tool on the market, and we're very happy to have it in our product. But, uh, you know, unlike a typical technical phone interview that uses CoderPad, in order to preserve anonymity, we can't just have both parties using Skype or uh, using phone or something like that. So we ended up um, building a bunch of stuff around CoderPad. So we have a VoIP connection. So VoIP call just starts automatically once you enter the interview. And if you're in a place with bad Wi-Fi, we'll just give you a conference room that we spin up automatically. And that conference room is also anonymous. Both parties get a pin. They just go in there and we'll stitch everything together, whether you're on phone or on VoIP. The other cool thing that we do with audio, and this is uh, one of the things I'm most excited about, is that we have the capability of actually making uh, gender completely anonymized in real time. So we can make women sound like men and men sound like women or, you know, um, make both parties, both genders sound completely androgynous in this uncanny valley, creepy kind of way. Uh, So we have complete control over that. And that actually happens in real time on the client. And this is something we have a patent pending on. Uh, So there's just a bunch of math happening on that sound wave before we even send it up to the server. Hmm. What's the importance of doing that? What kinds of biases are you removing from the process? Yeah, well, I think one of the biases that gets the most airtime is gender bias, right? So, you know, whether there is a bias against women in tech, that one is obvious. I don't know the answer to that. I can talk a bit about some of the data that we've uncovered in looking at our own interviews and comparing ones where gender was off the table to ones where it wasn't. I'll come back to that. The other biases that, you know, maybe are a little less popular and get like a little bit less journalistic time are ones that have to do with pedigree. And to me, those are definitely a real problem. Like gender bias, that's that's potentially a thing. And, and it's something that, that is a serious thing if it is. But one thing that we know for sure is happening is that companies are very, very much biased against people who did not attend a certain school or uh, work previously at you know, one of a few companies. And that even today, even that's that's even today. Absolutely. Um, This is something that is a a huge problem. I think that this has become a louder conversation and out of economic necessity, companies are starting to come around because if they continue to chase after the same 10 MIT grads in the valley, they're not going to have a workforce. And I I should I went to MIT. I shouldn't disparage MIT. It's a great school. But, you know, there are plenty of great engineers that I've worked with that did not go to school at all. Um, And plenty of people I went to school with that can't code. So, you know, there's (laughs) uh, it, it goes both ways. But definitely, uh, when I was first starting interviewing IO, and this was just a few years ago, I was still working as a recruiter. And one of the things I was doing as a recruiter was because I, I come from a technical background. I used to write code before doing that for about five years. I was in a position where I could interview my own candidates. So I always felt like if I'm going to endorse a candidate and say they're good, I want to make sure. So I'd run them through some technical questions so I could feel good about it. And then I'd present these candidates to uh, some of the companies I was working with, and they would say no. And I'm like, well, what do you mean no? They, I know this person can code. And they're like, oh, no, it doesn't matter. Like, we have a hiring spec. Essentially, we are looking for people from these schools and these companies. And there is one startup that I actually worked with that I won't name that actually gave me a flowchart <laughs> to make my life easier. They're like, oh, you're a recruiter. You work with us. Here's a flowchart. Did they go to the school? Oh, no, they didn't. Okay, then, you know, do not pass go. Do not collect $100 
you were not taking this candidate. So th this is something that uh, really pissed me off, as you can imagine. And um, one of the companies I worked with actually issued me this challenge, and they ended up being one of my favorite uh, companies to work with. And I still work with them in the interviewing IO capacity today. They said, look, you have a bunch of people that look really weird on paper. We're going to give this a shot. So no matter who you send us, if you feel good about them, we'll talk to the first five. And then by that point, if I forget exactly what the terms were, but it was like if, if at least two of them don't get an offer or at least one of them doesn't get hired, whatever it was, uh, then we're never working with you again. And I was like, all right, guys, challenge, challenge accepted. Let's do this. And that ended up working out so well. And I have such tremendous respect for this particular company, whereas a lot of the other ones that I worked with, and I was working with some of the top startups in the Valley, uh, you know, uh, they, they would just say, nope, not, not going to engage. And I think that uh, I understand why, like recruiters have a job to do and they've been trained in looking at a certain set of proxies because those proxies do carry some signal, like they're not entirely worthless and many recruiters don't have the domain expertise to do anything else. So they're just trying to do the best they can. But, you know, one of the only ways that I think to break out of this pattern, and this is still something that's pervasive today, and this is why interviewing IO insists that every interview be anonymous, even when they're real, is because companies still do put so much weight in, into people's backgrounds. So, uh, you know, one of the only ways to fight this is with data, right? And, and that's why we, we set up interviewing IO the way we did it. So we can collect so much data and so much convincing data about people's performance that companies then can't be in a position to say no. And in fact, it's, it's working. Most of our candidates end up making it through companies' processes successfully because how well you interview is actually a pretty good predictor in aggregate of how well you're going to interview. Not, not rocket science. Right. The data collection is the hard part, not the, not the concept. Yeah. You have a pretty interesting background. This background of going from engineering to studying recruiting in detail. And I remember I, I was an engineer. I was working and I would see your blog posts and your articles because you were just kind of writing about recruiting for a while. And it seemed like you were really just trying to explore the space and figure it out. And I remember your your blog posts going to the top of Hacker News, and people were clearly reading what you had to say, and I was reading it too because it was intriguing. You were finding contradictions and uh, assumptions in the industry, and obviously it led you to starting a business. I'm a little bit curious about that that transitionary period because you know I'll tell you I, I you know I, as an engineer like you maybe I mean. I like Probably coding. I, I did. I never really liked coding. I was like, yeah, I'm going to get the of this industry. <laughs> but you must have liked, I mean, you must have liked it enough to at least, you know, I think you, you got a computer science degree, uh, right? I think you, actually, it's a, it's in brain and cognitive sciences. So I studied comp sci. Um, I actually started coding when I was very young, like. Right. Uh, yeah. So you, so, so you like it enough. I, and I'm just, you know, asking this as kind of a, you know, taking a side path because, you know, my personal experience, I was, you know, engineer for a while, and uh, it, I enjoyed it, but I wanted to try something that was tangentially related. That's how I went into software engineering podcasting, and it's kind of random, but, you know, you took a similar, I would say, a similar path into studying recruiting of software engineers, which is a strange and niche route and probably surprised some people when you started delving into it. But maybe for people who are listening who are software engineers and Maybe they're fairly new to software engineering. Maybe they graduated in the last couple of years or they just went to a coding boot camp and they're in their first job and they're starting to have this sensation where, 
you know, maybe engineering is not for me. Maybe I shouldn't be a software engineer. Maybe I can explore something laterally to software engineering. Maybe you have some some words of advice or just some anecdotes for your own career exploration. Yeah, well, I'm I'm happy to talk about myself. So, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite subjects. No, um, so I I guess that the best piece of advice that I can give is that at least for me, nothing felt deliberate. My career path is one of the most tangled and windy ones that I've heard about, at least, you know, in our industry, in our industry, many people are very goal oriented, right? And they just do the thing they're supposed to do, and then they succeed at it. That That's not what happened to me. So first off, the reason I ended up switching away from computer science as a major is because I flunked. Uh, so at MIT back in the day, they don't do this anymore. But um, back in my day, uh, there was this class that you had to take called um, circuits and electronics or something like that. It was just a class where you just messed with a breadboard all semester and um, did stuff with uh, circuits and circuit design. And no ma- and you had to have this class uh, for a computer science degree. It was one of the few electrical engineering classes you had to take. So I actually flunked it. I flunked it not once, but twice. And, you know, I actually enjoyed programming quite a bit back then. Uh, but for me, you know, it was always a means to an end. Like I, I never found a lot of elegance in it. I'm a very practical person and it was a nice way to get shit done. And it was a nice way to automate away tasks that, you know, I maybe didn't want to spend a lot of time on. I'm, I'm very impatient as, as a person and, um, you know, very instant gratification and programming kind of helped with, with that. But at that point, I realized that, you know, I probably wasn't going to get a CS degree unless I wanted to take this class for a third time and flunk it probably, which I didn't. So, you know, I got this random degree in brain and cognitive sciences, which ended up feeding into a lot of the blogging that I did, because that's where I first started reading a lot of interesting papers about human behavior and learning a lot of statistical techniques. And these things ended up serving me much better in a lot of ways than some of the programming assignments that I did, although I had no way of knowing that at the time. And then after I graduated, I ended up cooking professionally for three years, which was um, one of the most intense uh, periods of my life and one where <laughs> I got to meet people that I never would have met otherwise. But um, I'm really grateful that I did it, in, one, because I have some crazy stories, but that, that's not the main reason. The main reason is that that was the first time that I really got to see a different hiring process. As an aside, like when you want to get a job as a cook, you don't really talk about your resume or your experience or your hopes and dreams or your five-year plan or whatever. You just show up and you bring your knives and then that that's what you do, right? You just start doing the work. So you're at the restaurant in the morning, you're prepping for the station where you're going to be working. And in the evening, you're putting out dishes that the station that you've been assigned to is responsible for. And the whole time, someone's watching you. And at the end of the night, if you did a good job, then you get a job offer and they feed you. And if you didn't do a good job, maybe they feed you and then they send you home. And to me, that was just eye-opening because I'd always thought that engineering was supposed to be something that was super meritocratic. And then I realized that the way that engineers are hired is just not meritocratic when compared to this other industry that's much older. So that that stuck with me and informed a lot of the ways in which I thought about hiring. Although again, I had no idea that that was going to be in my brain or come up later in my life. So the reason I got into recruiting too was also very uh, unplanned. I was working at this tiny company where nobody was doing hiring. The whole company was 20 people and the Eng team was about five. And all of us, the whole Eng team was kind of taking on recruiting in this distributed fashion. So we were all looking at resumes and we were all scheduling phone screens and we were all doing interviews and it was exhausting. So finally I thought, whatever, I'll take one for the team and then we can all get the hell back to work. 
Of course, it ended up being a much bigger job than all of that. And I found myself rather enjoying it, but it also wasn't on purpose. But, you know, when I when I got into it, I just realized how messed up this whole industry was and how third party recruiters were making a lot of money and doing all the wrong things. And, you know, there were all these generally bad practices and inefficient means of hiring people that perpetuated a lot of discrimination in this industry, not, you know, maybe in the traditional gender or race sense, although that might be an issue as well, but just against people that didn't meet some very arbitrary seeming set of proxies. So to to answer your question in a very long-winded way, what I would encourage people to do is to try stuff and to, you know, not worry if it's the right thing or not the right thing. I I've had some conversations with women, especially younger ones, where they talk about how maybe they don't necessarily want to program. And there are plenty of women that do, but, you know, the ones that I've spoken to sometimes don't, but they feel like they're kind of abandoning the mantle and failing women everywhere because they're leaving computer science to do something else. And it's like, no, you should, you should do what, what makes you happy. And a lot of the time you don't know what that is. So the best thing you can do is try stuff. But when you try it, Like try it in a way where you're actually immersing yourself in it and where you're looking around you and you're noticing things and you're trying to understand why things are the way they are and noticing maybe inefficiencies or just noticing patterns or really just doing anything that takes you out of the way you usually think and challenges your perspective. And I guarantee if you're if you're a thoughtful person and you have any kind of motivation at all, if you just acquire some of this data, your brain is going to turn it into something amazing and you'll figure out what you want to do if you're fortunate enough to actually have that choice. Of course, some of us don't have that choice and we have to do a certain work, uh, line of work because that's what pays the bills. And for me, that was software engineering for a number of years. But, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to kind of be able to marry that with something that I'm interested in. Indeed. Well, I mean, I can I can share your echo your advice. Uh, I think people who you know, if you, if you if you work hard and you spend some time developing skills in software engineering, it gives you a lot of license to go and explore other things. Oh, yeah. um, you can always come back to to coding. It's a pretty good safety net, at least for now. And you know, especially in your younger years, it's such a good can be such a good strategy to go and explore kind of a random walk. Definitely. Let's get back to interviewing.io. So you're a source of very interesting data, and you're looking closely at that data in a way that other people are not. Give a little bit of a taste of what you're looking at right now. So, you know, and people who want to see very some very interesting studies, for example, on the correlation between what programming language you choose in your interview and how the interviewers might see that. So, for example, if you choose PHP for your programming interview, you might be perceived negatively at certain companies. Maybe at other companies, you might be perceived positively, perhaps uh, Facebook or <laughs> WordPress, but those would be outliers. <laughs> Tell me what, I mean, I've, I've read a, a number of these blog posts about the data that you're studying. Tell me what you're looking at lately. Like what kinds of interesting stuff is, is coming out that you haven't uh, had a chance to write about yet, perhaps? Oh, you want, you want the new stuff. The new stuff. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll see what I can do. Well, give me the scoop. <laughs> Just for for background, we have a lot of interview data, and I've alluded to it a few times in this interview, but we collect basically everything that happens during a technical interview. So all the code people write, whatever happens when they hit run, uh, whether it, you know, compiles or, you know, what the output is. Also, every text chat, everything that people draw, and, uh, of course, the the audio track for both the interviewer and the interviewee. Did I mention that already? I might have mentioned that. But in any case, the interesting thing is once you get a lot of these interviews, you can start to actually 
draw some interesting results from those. And of course, one of the pieces of data that makes that possible is what happens after each interview, which is how people do. So we've looked at everything from whether gender actually matters to uh, how people do from interview to interview to whether a top school or other things might be more or less predictive of your interview performance. And these, a lot of these findings have been surprising in large part because I think nobody really knows anything about interviewing and we're all just still learning. One of the things that's coming up that we haven't published yet, but that I've started digging around a little bit into is what makes somebody a good interviewer. And there are some very, very repeatable patterns that we've noticed and repeatable behaviors and markers among interviewers that are rated highly on our platform versus interviewers that are maybe not rated so highly. And I won't give away all the stuff, um, you know, I'll leave some surprises, but one of the things that we found over and over that seems to matter, and this should not be a surprise to anybody that's ever done interviews, is engagement. So people spend a lot of time trying to find the perfect question and trying to calibrate and doing all of these things. But the fact is, you shouldn't be reading Reddit or Facebook when you're interviewing somebody because they can tell. And that is probably the worst mistake that interviewers make. That is, of course, again, one of the more obvious things, but I'll leave the salacious, less obvious details to the post itself, if you forgive me. All right. Well, I'm closing Reddit right now. (laughs) Though that's fair. When I talk, I expect everyone's reading Reddit all the time. So tell me about some of the the companies that are using interviewing.io. Explain how they use it. Maybe you could just refresh people for who who may have, you know, didn't quite understand what your platform does. Give an example like end-to-end why this is useful for the companies who are on interviewing.io. Yeah. So value prop for engineers is pretty clear. You get free practice and then you get direct access to companies without having to jump through hoops. For companies, we think it's the fastest, most efficient, and in many cases, cheapest way to hire senior and more recently, uh, interns and new grad software engineers. So think about how a company typically runs their hiring process. They have recruiters going out and sourcing candidates. That takes a lot of time, right? Um, In our experience, it takes about 10 hours to source one candidate that actually gets into your process. And sourcers are not actually very cheap. They used to be, not anymore. Good sourcers are expensive, almost as expensive as engineers themselves. Um, Sorcerers? (laughs) Sorcerers. Um, So people whose job it is to send you the spam that says, hey, you should work at our startup. Sorcerers. Okay, got it. Um, uh, I think they, some of them, you know, do what they, what they do does border on witchcraft for, for some of the good ones, but yeah, so, so sourcers are, are people that go out and kind of, um, throw spaghetti at a bunch of balls. Um, and some of them do it very well, some less so, but, uh, it is their job to get people in at the top of the funnel at the beginning of the process. At that point, you have a candidate talk to a recruiter and the recruiter sells them on the company and also evaluates them on some of the more intangible aspects of, of a candidate's profile. You know, can they communicate? Are they a good culture fit? Whatever that means. And then and only then, after a candidate uh, gets through that, do they actually get to talk to an engineer? By now, you've spent something like 60 hours of, uh, I think it's 15 hours a candidate or something to, to get to to get to that one technical phone screen. And what happens now is you, you do the screen and if you have a good funnel, 
maybe one in four people will actually make it through because up until now you have no indication that this person can code at all. So, you know, by the time you get to a single onsite, you've invested so much time and so much money. Most companies track some metrics. They don't necessarily track how much time it takes to get to an onsite and to a hire, but it's a lot. In our experience, it can take months to hire a good senior engineer in large part because uh, the process is so noisy. So we're trying to short circuit all of that. We think that instead of going out and trying to get a bunch of candidates to come to you in this market where most of them aren't going to respond and where you actually have no idea if they're any good, what if we can just bring really qualified engineers to you? So uh, the reason our companies, I think, work with us is because with interviewing IO, you can get with a local candidate from first interview to offer in as little as a week. This is something that makes us very proud. And the reason we can do this is because we have such a good idea of who our candidates are and whether they can code. And of course, lack of technical ability is the main reason that companies reject candidates. But, you know, unfortunately, even getting to that point in their process is pretty buried because there has to be a lot of stuff that happens before. So if you're a company on our platform, um, especially, you know, if, if we're deeply embedded in your process, you can tell us how many senior engineers you want to talk to every month and we'll just have them show up and you can interview them on our platform at pre-appointed times. We even have a mechanism where uh, scheduling happens completely automatically. So everything just lands on everybody's calendar, mindful of their availability. And companies are regularly making hires, you know, one in every six interviews, something like that, and making offers much more often. Uh, Lyft and Twitch are two of our biggest subscription customers where they're just doing this at a regular clip every month. And now instead of having to try all these disparate channels to get senior engineers into their pipe. They're just coming to them, and these are already people that have been pre-vetted. So it's just a really, really nice shot in the arm for any company's hiring process. We do specialize primarily in uh, back-end and full-stack engineers, so we're not yet at the point where we can do niche roles like machine learning. Front-end we'll probably do soon, but not yet. Um, but you know, if you want solid generalist engineers, I can confidently say that we're probably the best way to do it. All right. Pretty good business. What are the marketplace problems? Because this is a two-sided marketplace. Every two-sided marketplace has its frictions. It's got surpluses or it's got scarcity. What are the issues that you have around two-sided marketplaces and how do you solve them? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and it's, it's a real challenge. I think that one of the biggest problems that marketplace, especially two-sided marketplace companies encounter is this notion of chicken and egg, right? Like you have to have one side set before you can attract the other side. And where do you start? So with that, we got a little bit lucky because I was able to get our first influx of users through Hacker News, which has treated me so well and has been such an amazing channel for interviewing IO and for for, uh, me before that. We ended up just putting up a marketing site saying, You can get free anonymous technical interview practice with engineers from top companies. And we ended up getting, I think, 7,000 signups in the first 36 hours. And we were number one on HN for two days. And that was unreal. At that point, I realized that I had to shut down my stupid recruiting business and you know, do this instead. But, you know, that that certainly helped in this market. If you have the candidates, most of the time the, the companies will come. But there are other challenges as well, you know, making sure that your, your sides kind of balance one another. So you never want to have one side completely outstrip the other. So like, how do you grow them at the same rate, even though growing them takes very, very different kinds of effort. Getting companies on the platform is a very different experience 
than um, getting candidates. So that's, that's uh, generally been one of our big challenges is uh, making sure that we're growing steadily on the candidate side, but then that uh, we can keep up with companies. And of course, the more good companies you have on the platform, the more of a draw it is for candidates. Uh, but we've, we've been very mindful of our metrics. So at this point, we know exactly how many interviews it takes to make um, a hire. And we know how many candidates we need coming in every month in order to get to a certain number of monthly interviews. And uh, we know roughly how many people are going to be doing well in practice, but getting to that point where it's, it's like a well-oiled machine. And I don't even think we're well-oiled. We're kind of like at a machine, you know, we're, we're working on kind of oiling it up, but getting to, to a point where, you know, those things definitely takes uh, a lot of time. And it's something that we had to figure out in, in a very real way when we were raising money fairly recently, because when you raise money, people want to know these numbers. And if you don't know them, you look like an idiot. Hmm. The oil is oftentimes customer satisfaction type of people that help guide the candidates or the companies through the process. Have you had to put in a lot of work towards scaling that aspect of your business? Yeah, this is a great question. It's one of my favorite to answer. We actually, you know, there are a lot of very good players in this space that help companies hire. It's a crowded space. And there's a lot of money in it, so it's not surprising that people want to do it. But one of the things that makes this business really interesting to me is that we're trying really hard not to operate like a recruiting agency, but rather to operate like a true software platform. So that means that uh, unlike uh, many other companies in the space, we're not trying to hire more staff in order to grow. Or we, you know, we're going to need to hire engineers, of course, right, and product people and, you know, some amount of account management and customer support. But we are not looking to hire recruiters, right? We, we are not looking to be a recruiting agency with a clever gimmick and a nice skin that makes it seem like a software product. We actually want to be that real software product. So, for instance, all our scheduling happens automatically. Uh, we have a series of reminder emails on the platform that kind of take the place of a person nudging you. We really try to make it candidate driven. So candidates are in complete control of their entire job search the whole time and they can um, just control everything they need to. For us, the, the biggest and most important interaction that uh, happens during a job search is a candidate talking to a peer or a hiring manager at a company and having this really organic kind of high signal conversation about the actual work and about the company and the roadmap and all of these things that you need to talk to a domain expert in order to uncover. And we just want to have as many of, we want to take everything else away and put that center stage and then have as many of those interactions as possible. So we, um, we're not looking to hire recruiters or, you know, talent managers or talent advocates or any of these other things. We want this software platform to kind of do the work, the, the unglamorous work, and then have the, the real and interesting stuff be that conversation between the candidate and the company. Uh, that said, uh, you know, we are a software, <laughs> any software product needs at least one customer support person. And we recently hired one. Um, she's, she's amazing. And her previous background uh, doing interrogations in the U.S. Army, I think, lends herself particularly well uh, to doing customer support. What are the hardest engineering problems that interviewing.io is faced with today? Yeah, well, probably the most, like, quote-unquote, real piece of engineering 
that we've done has been our voice modulation. And if you go on our blog, you can hear a demo of me sounding like a guy. We're also fortunate enough to demo it on NPR last year. And that was like real hardcore, like fast Fourier transforms, you know, shit that you see in college and then you never see again. Well, we actually got to do real engineering at this company. So that was really, really exciting. Um, (laughs) Outside of that, I think that we suffer from a lot of this or not even suffer, but we face a lot of the same concerns that a startup of our size does, you know, living with um, some legacy code, refactoring things, setting, setting things up to scale, right? We definitely subscribe to this idea that uh, we shouldn't build tech until we absolutely have to. And our engine team is very, very small. So at the beginning we were doing, you know, credit to Paul Graham, of course, for doing things that don't scale. That was our approach. And then, you know, as we grow, we have to start kind of building stuff and and codifying a lot of the things that we were doing when we were still learning. So that's always uh, a transition that is not necessarily straightforward and one that takes place all the time. Um, And, you know, it's really important to have good product people that can figure out uh, the best way to make that transition. In terms of other tech, you know, we... Although these these problems are interesting, they're not necessarily super hard. We're we're really, really trying to uh, come up with the best experience around recruiting that that we can create. So making sure that scheduling is airtight, making sure that um, people are getting notified of everything that they need to be notified about without us having to ping them ourselves, right? Having this very robust system that can ensure that nobody is slipping through the cracks. And this is hard. And, you know, there are a lot of great recruiters that do it very well. And, you know, it's going to be a a matter of time if we can see whether we can replicate some of that in product. And maybe maybe we can't, but it's it's an exciting uh, challenge to take on. And uh, it's something that we hope we can do very well so that all of that minutia can get out of the way. And, uh, you know, whether it's recruiters or engineers or anybody else, like we just want to put the emphasis on two people that should be having a conversation, having a conversation. Aileen, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me.